everybody. I'm Dr. Scott. And I'm Dr. Shiloh. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. Today, our episode is a true crime documentary review on the HBO documentary entitled Alabama Snake. This is Andrew from the Scary Mysteries podcast, where every single week we dive into insane and creepy true crime compilations on Mondays. And on Wednesdays, we have our Twisted News episodes, where we get you up to speed on the most terrifying and strange news stories currently happening all around the world. We're covering the topics you want to hear about, missing persons, killers, UFOs, and more. Best of all, we don't waste your time with any fluff or fillers. Just stray to the true crime details. So go check out the Scary Mysteries podcast, and I'll see you there. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Our live show at Heritage Square Museum was absolutely great. And hopefully we'll have audio to share with you soon. We were just blown away with the number of people that came out. I mean, I think that was Shiloh. I think that was like two to three times bigger than our first, our very first little tiny live event. Yeah. 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 Thank you So, so much, everyone. Yeah. Thank you to everybody who made the time to come out and enjoy the storytelling and the venue with us. We look forward to doing more. Corey, who is a wonderful host at Heritage Mm -hmm. Square, is super eager for us to do another one in the spooky season. So we're going to keep our fingers crossed for that. Absolutely. Huge shout out and thank you to Heritage Square Museum really for the partnership in this. Felt very easy, very organic, and it was just the perfect setting for the evening. So hope everyone enjoyed. We certainly did. But now it's time to focus on CrimeCon UK and we are so ready. You can still get tickets at crimecon.co.uk and make sure you use the code confidential to get 10% off. And if you're already going or you're going to be in town and just want a chance to say hi, please remember to RSVP for our meetup at Bike Shed London on Friday night, June 9th. Links for all of this is in our show notes always and linktree slash LA Not So Pod. You can get whenever we have tickets or anything, the links will be there as well. It's going to be a blast and we just can't wait to see everyone that we've been communicating with for all these years. Like not only some of our American friends that are going to be over there, but certainly our UK friends. So if you can make it, please, please, please join us. So last week we brought you the vintage episode on the Brick Bat Slayer. And one of the first things we we did was we knocked out of the park a definition of what a brick bat was because I didn't know. <laughs> and what is a brick bat? You say, well, it's an old timey way of referring to a brick being used as a weapon. So I guess they're just not the most sleek or easy to carry <laughs> weapons these days. No. And that's why we don't use that term, right? And in this case, there was a lot of slaying going on. What we did was tell you all about this little known serial killer by reviewing his very violent crime spree, both here in LA and Chicago, and the forensic evidence that linked the two series of events. And then also talk about some real blind spots Mm -hmm. in the police, blind spots in society, blind spots even in our field of forensic psychology in regards to this particular killer. I was not really prepared. Yeah. I mean, on one hand, there was great work, like great detective work, interesting, very early forensic work. But yeah, again, like that time, the 30s in LA and the way that media really was just pretty gross with the way they ran with these stories and the people. Yeah, I think this is one of our episodes that holds something that is very special in comparison to other vintage episodes because some of the incisive opinion in today's time Mm -hmm. about how that was handled and what was missed is probably some of the most blatant examples that we've ever seen. I mean, it's really well done. So please give it a try, folks. Yes. So as we turn to our documentary review this week, we always start with what we're watching, what we're reading, what we're listening to. I just finished a book yesterday. It's called The Mirage Factory, Illusion, Imagination, and the Invention of Los Angeles. It's by Gary Christ. And basically, it's three mini bios of major pillars of LA history. You have William Mulholland, an immigrant ditch digger, basically turned self-taught engineer. D.W. Griffith, who completely transformed the motion picture industry. And then Amy Simple McPherson. So it's really about their rise and their falls in 
LA and it's a great snapshot of, again, that period of time as well. And you guys know we've covered Sister Amy's story on one of these vintage episodes. Highly recommend. It was great. I didn't know if I was going to bring this up. I will be pretty short and sweet because there's only one episode out, but I am listening to the podcast Night Raid, which is done by, I believe, Crime Story Media, if I have that right. But this is about the murder of a police officer who was killed in a SWAT operation. And it's very bizarre to listen to because this person was a friend of mine. Mm. And the first episode's out. I feel like it's done very well. It's very neutral, very... There's a lot of journalistic integrity there and still awkward, but it's not triggering, at least not yet, because she's really going to dive into the offender and the investigation into the shooting and the court case all along the journey of the podcast. So it's just super weird to sit there and listen to people that you know being interviewed (laughs) in these investigation tapes. So we'll see how it goes. But so far, I recommend it. What about you? What are you listening to watching these days? You know, we've been super, super busy and I really have had my nose to the grindstone with some things in my day job. There's been, because of the recent increase in shootings, there's been a lot of copycat leakage. And every time there's one of those, our work has to chase it. Sometimes it's chasing a rabbit. Sometimes it's chasing a goose. But you, it doesn't matter. You have to treat them all the same. The, the one thing that I did carve out some time to listen to is our wonderful colleague, Amanda, over at Vanished. I've spoken about her podcast before. I really highly recommend it. I think she does a really great job of just telling some absolutely mesmerizing stories of people who disappear. And most recently, what happened, which I'm still trying to process, is I reached out to Amanda about another episode, and she said, you know, I'm not working on that one anymore, but I've got this other thing that's happening in LA. Can I pick your brain? And we had a great afternoon of sharing some information and talking about sort of clinical aspects of what happens when people disappear. And so she said, please, is it okay if we record this. I was like, absolutely. And what's fascinating is it's a story of Bowman. It ended up being four episodes then. I believe she's going to do a follow-up. And in this bizarre synchronicity, Bowman, an individual who was just vanished off the face of the earth here in Los Angeles and was an incredible missing persons case, he was found. His remains were found. And so, yeah, we've, you and I, like, certainly I don't have the personal connection to what we're listening to like you do, but this just felt weird. Like, the inner the vibe is off or or maybe it's really on i don't know (laughs) well because and just so our listeners are clear you did this interview with her your episode aired and then they found his remains like yeah yeah a week later after the episode aired yeah truly strange after after him being missing for over a year and a half Mm -hmm. so yeah wild stuff gosh well our thoughts are with his family and loved ones for sure absolutely and all the people that really cared about him i mean this was one of those disappearance cases where a lot of people really got involved in doing their citizen sleuthing and I think underneath it all, people care. I think that people really care. And sometimes their own drive gets in the way, but people came together to really look for him. And I'm just glad that there's going to be some resolve. Yeah, definitely. But anyway, let's talk about our show this week, because again, you and I had kind of our brain ratings were Uh like, not what I expected. Might be surprising. Yeah, exactly. And so this month's documentary is... Alabama Snake, and it's from 2020 on HBO Max. And specifically, I was telling Scott, I don't want to pick something on Netflix again. I'm just going to go hunt for something elsewhere. <laughs> no, I think that's great. We have been doing everything. I mean, Netflix has, we could, oh yeah, we have unending resources on totally. Netflix, but let's, let's give some other people some love. Let's give, exactly. over, let's give other multinational conglomerates some yeah, love, right? I'm sure HBO really needs our help. <laughs> no. But this title stuck out to me for obvious reasons. I was like, well, Scott's from Alabama. Maybe he has something to say about this. And you certainly do. I have so much to say. (laughs) Gosh, I hope I didn't like open any cans of worms or bring up anything to... No, it actually makes me... I'm actually glad that that this story is being told because it is just such a strange slice Mm -hmm. of life. And every every area of the world has this level of high strangeness. But this is one that just doesn't get talked about very much. And I'm actually kind of glad that we're talking about it. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this one's directed by Theo Love. He's the one that did the documentary McMillions. Right. And on IMDb, it has a rating of 
of 7.2 on Rotten Tomatoes. It was only about 64%. But And I had not heard of it. So it's been a few years. It's been out there. But Alabama Snake is the story of a Pentecostal preacher named Glenn Summerford, who on a night in 1991, he either did or maybe did not attempt to murder his wife through the act of forcing her at gunpoint to put her hand into a box that contained venomous snakes. So there's a lot of background about those snakes that we'll <laughs> oh, get yeah. into. Oh, but yes. Glenn was charged and arrested and convicted with attempted murder. He's found guilty and then sentenced to 99 years in prison. Yeah, so the story does have a lot of depth and nuance despite some really lurid branding, but we'll get to all of that. Yeah, so back to what Dr. Shale was saying in 1991 in what was then a very rural area of Alabama in a town called Scottsboro. No relation to me, Dr. Scott, <laughs> but very close to where I grew up, like literally just a drive over a mountain pass from me. A very strange and very convoluted crime occurred that is this mysterious mix of faith, fighting, and just to make it interesting, some fangs of venomous snakes. So there you got it. Fighting, faith, and fangs. There's Alabama for you. I got it. Yeah. So geographically, Scottsboro is an impressive and absolutely beautiful place in northern Alabama. It has relatively mild weather and this really gorgeously developed lake recreation and resort area called Lake Gunnersville. But a couple of decades ago, the area was really economically struggling with the ongoing challenges of a dying textile industry that had once really been just a huge support to the community. And that had been going on for about two and a half decades prior to that. But yeah, really beautiful. It was not beautiful when I was growing up. It was, the, the lake was kind of gross, but we went there anyway because it was, you know, you got to go to Lake Gunnersville and play in the gross water. Yeah. Well, I'm just going to stop you. I need you to let that accent come out a little bit more for this episode, please. Ooh, we're going to talk <laughs> no, about that. <laughs> there, are so, there are so many, for anybody who's listening, like, like most of you know that I was in entertainment for a long time and my accent was for Alabama when I was growing up because I watched so much television. Mm. My accent was actually relatively mild. Yeah. But when I moved to Chicago, I mean, waiters and waitresses couldn't understand what I was saying. Stop it. No, I'm not kidding. I'm <gasps> not kidding you at all. It was really, wow. I mean, to them, it was really, really strong. And wow. so, and there are times when I'll go back, I remember on Christmas day, my mom and I were driving from Northern Alabama to deep, deep South Alabama. And there were hunters out on these county roads and we got totally turned around. We pulled over, we flagged down this hunter and he walks over and I said, Hey, how do I get back to the interstate? And he starts going, well, you can get old nerve and I'm completely I turned to my mom and I was like, translate. Did you understand any of that? And she just started laughing, was able to translate. <laughs> oh but my gosh. That being said, the accents in this documentary are fascinating because they yeah. are Northern Alabama, but they are also very strong mountain accents. They are mm. Appalachian mountain accents. Yeah. I didn't find it hard to follow. I mean, I watch everything with subtitles. So maybe I was just kind of tuning into that anyway, but it wasn't like you're describing with this person who was giving you instructions where I was like, what the hell is this person saying? But so on the night in question, a 911 call came into the emergency system and basically the person on the other end just said, snake bite, come quick. And that's where this story starts. And that voice was Darlene Summerford. And she claimed that her husband, this Pentecostal preacher and snake handler, Glenn Summerford forced her hand into the box of snakes in their home over a period of days in an attempt to kill her. She claimed that Glenn had a demon inside of him. And during interviews, it set off what one person described as, quote, a battle of dueling perspectives, all of it bathed in booze, bad decisions, and the blood of the lamb. So here we go. <laughs> Super interesting. Yeah, that's some pretty good alliteration there. Almost good as, what did I, fight and faith, fighting and fangs. <laughs> Actually, it's better than mine, so. <laughs> well, at the top of this documentary, we're first introduced to the story framed as basically Appalachian folklore, which was a really good hook for me. I was kind of all in. It's like this rainy night. You have this professor sort of 
going through archives. And it gives us a little taste at the top about, you know, mentioning this mountain folk that you're talking about who quote unquote take up serpents or Pentecostal serpent handling for religious services. And they are starting to illustrate this by showing some footage of families and churchgoers and the grainy home VHS tape from the 80s and early 90s makes it pretty compelling. So the doctor that I'm talking about at the beginning, the professor is Dr. Thomas G. Burton, and he's a folklorist, an expert in the area of Pentecostal snake handling. And he provides a huge source of information during this documentary from Glenn's perspective, because he has done numerous jail and prison interviews with Glenn, recorded all of it for basically his contribution of this story to the folklore academic world, really. And he's seen in multiple shots of the documentary, sort of, you know, sitting by a fireplace, slowly sipping some bourbon as we listen to these scratchy cassette taped interviews. So then the documentary switches to the telling of the story the night of the investigation in 1991 with a lot of people who are amazingly still around, like a surprising yes. number. The EMTs, the responding police officers and detectives, and the hospital staff. And I, yeah. <laughs> I have There's... to say, like those EMTs, like, y'all, I love you, but I... you need to retire. Y'all, oh, those, if God. they're still active EMTs, I'd be really worried about them keeling over. Seriously, I, really I was on. like, these people are old as dirt, or they've just had really rough lives. I can't tell. Um, yes, on both. Yes, on, yeah, yes to both. Probably, but I was like, did they dress them up in ENT uniforms to do this interview, I, or are they still on the job? What the hell? I almost hope that they were. I was like, I, I mean, that so would be too. badly done, but I was like, oh, I don't want you working. I want you relaxing and enjoying yeah. your, your retirement. And but, they're very sweet, though. Like, I appreciate oh, yeah. the participation, like, super endearing, all of them, but it was just an interesting note. <laughs> yeah. The EMTs talk about getting dispatched to that call at the residence, and this woman is in the dark road, and she has got bad mm. snake bites on one of her hands. And they end up having to drive her to Birmingham, which is almost 80 miles away, which is really weird because I'm Huntsville would have been closer. Oh. And, I don't know, and Huntsville has two great hospitals. Did they back uh, then? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I wonder like, if they called around medical... to see who had venom, like snake or anti-venom. You know what? That's probably it. Yeah. Mm. Oh, and you know what was weird, too, is IMDb says based on a true story, which is very strange because this is yeah. a documentary and this is actually very much a documented crime. So I don't know why they chose that word. But anyway. Maybe because of the artistic like liberties they took with some of the scenes, just recreating them. Maybe that they had to put that. And we'll talk that about that too, because some of them are very, very, very artistic and eph ephemeral almost because there are special effects and stuff. But it's interesting. I just thought that the pace of this, I have to say right now, was glacially slow. Like, so slow, recounting the night of this alleged, well, no, fully adjudicated crime took place. With regards to my opinion, he was found guilty. Yeah. Okay. So Darlene survives and says that her husband, the self-proclaimed pastor of their church, forced her at gunpoint to put her hand in the snake box because he thought that she was running around on him. And Oh my God, You now, now you have an accent. Do I? No, I don't even know. Running around. Running around on him. Okay. So he then keeps her essentially from seeking medical attention for at least a day. And according to her, he does this one more time, inflicting a second bite, forcing her to have her hand bit again. Mm, yeah. And he told her that basically it was going to look like a suicide where he would just wake up in the morning and find her dead. However, Glenn's defense maintains that it was in fact a suicide attempt. And he's, like you said, arrested, tried and convicted. So in the first 20 minutes, you get all of that. It's like yeah, all wrapped up. It's already done. Like, <laughs> like oh, uh, where are we going now? We got an hour and 40 to go. What's happening? But let me just Talk about Glenn Summerford for a second here. He's the now convicted focus of the documentary and alleged, but pretty well documented, former hothead who experienced bullying as a youth and was really coached into fighting skills by his tough-as-nails stepfather who was in the armed forces, like special forces. Yeah, he special says. forces. And basically to protect himself from bullies and whatever these fighting skills you're going to need as a man, like really is taking him out there and like fighting with this kid to teach him. And through his early life, Glenn is engaging in fighting. He is willingly, and then as an adult, engaging in clandestine bare knuckle fights to make drinking money, like these organized 
like kind of picture Fight Club <laughs> with all of the sort of riffraff of this area. You know, the guys kind of getting together to do this and following the appearance of two evangelicals at his door one day who claimed that they had been sent to his home by God. Glenn eventually had an epiphany found Jesus and turned toward a life as a man of faith. So, you know, that doesn't mean he still didn't drink, even though he told everybody he stopped drinking. But Glenn asserts throughout the interviews that due to his Christian redemption, that's where he attests to he could have never have tried to murder his wife. And he sticks to it. Yeah, it's interesting because it's really, they do set it up as that his life really did make a very big shift Yes, after he converted. Mm -hmm. But clearly there are some things going on. And while this particular method of crime is very sensational and, and unique, to say the least, the real interest of the story here is opening up the audience to this world of Pentecostal snake handlers and the tiny roadside church where Glenn was a preacher. And for me, the most outstanding feature of the doc is this use of the video that you were talking about mm -hmm. from the late 80s, early 90s of this community of Christian Bible literalists whose use of snake handling in their religious practices is ongoing, regular, and very important even to this day. Smaller numbers, but it's still happening. And this documentary provides a window into really what is an alien way of life to the larger community. And But it lies parallel right beside the genteel communities of the South. And yeah. it's completely different. It was so freaky, really, to see this old video, which looked much older, honestly, but to see them with literally handfuls of rattlesnakes, like multiple rattlesnakes in their hands. Yeah, it's Oof. so, you know, just 45 miles one way and 80 miles the other way, you have the real 80s and 90s mm -hmm. where people are wearing sort of, you know, maybe more trendy clothes. Yeah, and true. What what seems to make this tape look older is you see people, they're wearing shirt sleeves. They're all wearing their nice right. short sleeve shirts and either jeans, everything's tucked in. Yeah, you know, high very collars short on hair. the women. Yeah, you know, very little makeup, mm. pretty. I mean, not so far as like fundamentalist, like, you know, like fundamentalist Mormon dresses yeah, or anything, right, right. but very demure, you know, mm -hmm, very modest mm -hmm. dressing and which can make things seem a lot older than they are. But there are some extensive interviews with Glenn by the professor that you introduced, and his niche interest in his research for years has been Pentecostal snake handlers. And Glenn recounts to him of growing up with a father who had returned from the war, special forces, taught him how to fight, and then... Like you said, and this is jarring because they do offer this as a reenactment. And I have to say, I'm not sure if it was his father or his stepfather. I thought I heard mm, stepfather, but I'm it sure wasn't. And, and it's jarring to see how he's teaching him to protect himself from the bullies. But he's not teaching him defensive. He's teaching him to fight and he's slapping him right. around like oh, he's yeah. throwing him in the water. Get up, do it again. Mm -hmm. And but it's never framed as as if he's being abused. He's like, I'm teaching you how to fight and it's going to hurt because you got to know how to get yeah, hurt. Yeah. Which is not something we would see in parenting manuals these days. But just after age 18 or so, he marries his first wife, Doris. Doris Summerford, Glenn's wife, is able to testify in the documentary about his early years mm -hmm. and their marriage as a very young couple of adults and then immediately going into producing children. Doris comes across, I felt like, very humorous and and laid back and relieved that she got out of the marriage when she did. Yeah. She's open to talk. She doesn't seem gossipy or tattling on anybody. She's just like, hey, wasn't working. Mm -hmm. He cheated. Go with God. Get out of here. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to move on. She does confirm, though, that he was still a fighter, participating in these big organized fights for money. And then she talks of one particularly brutal beating of another guy that got him in a lot of trouble yes. with very bad consequences. So it really is like Fight Club. It's like mm -hmm. Fight Club in a barn and they mm -hmm. are beating the shit out of each other. Yep. And Glenn gets so enraged during one of these paid fights that he pummels a guy's face so hard that his eye popped out. Yep. Yeah. So that guy's family came after Glenn and like, we're going to we're going to fuck you up. And they really did. Yeah, so it, it does. It, it It's really like sort of between the interviews with the doctor and then Doris sort of painting this picture of what, you know, a really rough and tumble guy this was, a very violent guy. And a quote that sticks out to me about hers when she's talking about his abusive nature when it turned to her, how she says, well, I just thought that fear and love went together. 
because she was like constantly scared of him. And it well, was that's just, all she knew. Right? That's all she knew. And it was such, you know, you see it in that marriage. And then later in footage with his second wife, just like these classic battered women tropes. But it's, you know, it's coming from their own mouth, really. But yes, then they suffer a huge, devastating tragedy when one night their house catches on fire. And it's suspected that it may have been an arson because Glenn had so many enemies. And he and his wife lose their 18-month-old baby daughter in the fire. And if he was this bad, tough guy before, this really horrific loss just drives him more towards heavy, heavy alcohol use. And... But really, it's it's downhill for the marriage from there, which we know when couples lose children, they rarely stay together. And he starts seeing other women and ends up marrying a woman named Darlene before he's even divorced from Doris yet. So Darlene is introduced into this documentary. Now, this is the snakebite victim that we're talking yeah. about here, that up until this point, we've really only seen her in old footage, including old Sally Jesse Raphael footage, which was a weird 80s flashback. <laughs> yeah. So, but that's a great aspect that you're talking about is that this here, this whole crime, the trial, everything was so sensationalized yes. at that time that they were on the, the talk show circuit. Mm -hmm. So let's describe a little bit about Darlene Summerford. She's Glenn's second wife, like we were saying. She's on Jolly Jesse Raphael. And a relationship between the two of them began as an affair. And Glenn, like you said, he leaves his first relationship without even divorcing her to go be with Darlene. He leaves Doris struggling to raise a family on her own. And Darlene is portrayed in the documentary predominantly in the majority of yeah. the documentary through actress reenactments. She does appear later in the documentary in brief interviews in several scattered and somewhat distracted sections. That's a good way to put it. Darlene, without making too many assumptions, presents as probably someone with a lot of horrific trauma, obviously, there's the snake bite issue and there's the other stuff that we learn about the relationship, but she's got a lot going on. She's got yeah. a lot going on and it's, you know, it's a little tough to watch because it's one of those points where I feel like, Ugh, this feels a little exploitative because I don't know where Darlene's head is at, where her emotional state is at when she's being interviewed. Well, that's one of the reasons that I felt like the editing was so choppy is I felt like they yeah. actually were probably trying to portray her in the best light possible. And, and I think, and let me don't, I'm not saying that they were being false. I think that they were no. trying to be kind. Agreed. Yes. Yeah. So from the beginning, she says that she regretted marrying Glenn and that the relationship was volatile from the start. They have a son, a little boy named Marty, and Glenn admits that he was a totally non-present father when Marty was little. And there's this reenactment scene where there's a baby lying on the floor crying and the actor portraying Glenn is just sitting on the couch sort of in the background looking just totally blank stare at this baby clearly needing some comfort and he's just sitting there. And it was so sad, like, because it's a real baby <laughs> sitting there crying. And you're just like, somebody pick up that baby. You know, it kind of got to me, but it, I think it really hit home just, you know, the neglect that was possibly present in the house. So Marty, adult Marty Summerford does also make an appearance throughout the documentary starting at this point. And he's a family man and has three, you know, young adult children of his own. And he shares his journey throughout basically all of this nonsense that was happening between his parents and the crime and the allegations and lived with them. It sounds like up until the crime happened and then talks about being raised elsewhere. They don't really say like what other family member or who took him in, but he alludes to being pretty grateful for that because his, obviously his father went to prison, but it sounds like his mom was not in a good space to be taking care of him either. And, you know, he's been able to make a nice country life for himself and his family. So it was interesting to see his take. Yeah, he seems like he has worked really hard and, and also benefited from a, a good support system. Mm -hmm. And you're happy for him. I felt like I'm just glad to see this because one of the, they don't really talk about it much, but just like many marginalized, low-income communities, this particular community of mountain folk, like there's just sort of, if you, you can be just 45 miles from a major city and yet not have any opportunity. Yeah. Like, and that could be because of skill set 
or lack of education or, you know, just lack of understanding what's available and then mm-hmm. cultural restraints on. And this is a big one in the South, too, in at all levels is like, I can't even tell you how many times I've heard aunts and uncles saying things like, you know, don't get too big for your britches, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. right. I mean, it's, yeah. it's sort of a mixed message that Southerners send their kids. I like think. you're turning your back or like if you get too good for. Oh, you think you're better than us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You think you're better than us. So like you said, the evangelicals showed up at Glenn's door. God told us to come. He's converted. He stops drinking or he tones it down a lot. And then he starts his own church and he becomes more and more engaged as a religious leader. And he does talk about, I mean, he comes across as quite authentic because sure. he said, you know, I just didn't know I was capable of doing this. Yeah. And like, I realized I had the responsibility of being a leader, and and, which feel, is a very interesting take, right? Yeah. You feel such relief for his family. Like, okay, this guy's yeah. going to get his shit together. He's going to yeah. stop drinking. He's going to stop beating people. And I think it seemed like there was a real sense of hope with them as well, that this right. was, you know, this was going to turn around. So now we're going to get Glenn's version of what happened. And he provides this background saying that Darlene started running around on him and telling Glenn things to get him mad. Like, so she's running around having an affairs and she's allegedly trying to precipitate an argument, precipitate a fight, mm-hmm. instigate things. He believes she's trying to provoke him to beat her so that then she can send him to jail instead of just leaving or getting a divorce. That's his rationale. Now, she even admits to him, allegedly admits to right. him, that she raped his two young teen sons from his previous marriage. Gets even more convoluted now because oh, yeah. one of the adult sons verifies it in the letter to Glenn and to the producers on the documentary, while the other alleged victim absolutely denies it. So another plot twist in this story. I mean, you know, each of their stories can be actually kind of compelling. I agree. He's concerned for her. He's trying to remain strong himself and he plans on divorcing her, but helping to get her mental health, get an evaluation because at one point she had tried to OD on pills. Now, I had a reaction to this because I was trying to think about the knowledge of something like that even being available Mm. to a person at that time in a very rural area. Interesting. Because that I, that just doesn't, that's the one thing here that doesn't sound like, wait, why are you saying that? Because I don't even think you'd be aware that that's a thing. And then also, like in Southern culture at that time, there was really just, you didn't talk about mental illness. Like the whole idea that you would, mental health, it's more like you pull yourself yeah. up by your bootstraps and you get straight and you get Jesus in there so you get those pills out or oh, whatever. That's you know? so interesting. Didn't even... It's, but that. it's just my perspective. Like, yeah. and you know, I had one that mine is particular from growing up there. But he says that the night in question, she did write a suicide note to her son and then went out to the shed or the structure where they kept the snakes and she stuck her hand in there to die by suicide. Okay. I, I just, maybe, I just think it's, I think it's kind of fascinating because I was like, that is a bad way to go. Oof. Snake venom is a bad way to die. But if you're wrapped up in this religiosity, I could see it as being super symbolic of this is how you're going to do it, right? So true. Yes. Very good point. And I think, you know, I like twists and turns in true crime documentaries. I think this one did that without like being overly dramatic. So when you're saying that both of their stories are compelling, the way that they they sort of lead the narrative does make it that way. In a way, you know, you're going like, God, she's telling him that she's sleeping with all these guys that she molested and, you know, forced, raped, forced his adolescent sons into sex with her and is trying to OD on these pills. Like you just think, okay, like this could be someone who at some point attempts suicide. So you're there and then Darlene's version comes out and it's even more interesting, but also compelling. So she really says that, you know, there wasn't too much buildup of anything going badly or poorly, but she talks about this one night, they're laying in bed. She hears the door open. She sees a black shadow figure knew it was a demon. And this isn't just out of nowhere, guys. Like in this documentary, they're talking about even Marty, the son talks about seeing his dad get demons out of people. I don't know how to even put this into words. How do they? Yeah, basically, I mean, it's one of the, we'll talk, we're going to talk a little bit about that when I explain yeah. the, the, the religious aspects, but that is one of the gifts of spirit when you're Pentecostal is you can cast out demons. Cast out demons. So That's what I was looking if, for. If, 
you're if you have this ability, mm-hmm. well, then having the ability is then going to support the belief that people are intrinsically and in- integrally influenced by demonic presences. I mean, it's like yes. one one begets the other. Yes, and that the the more you are filled with the Holy Spirit, the more the devil's going to come at you. So she right. basically says this this demon comes to their door. She casts it away. And then Glenn wakes up and says, what are you doing? And she tells him, and then he's like, no, call it back. I don't know what that's about. Anyway, this is her story. So she calls his demon back. It comes back in and it jumps into Glenn, essentially. And from then on, she said that his behavior was just out of control, angry again, violent again. He starts beating her. I mean, hits her in the face with the butt of a shotgun, often threatening her with guns. So here's what happened in that, because it it was spoken very quickly when she was telling her story, is he woke up, found her casting the demon out Mm -hmm. of the room. Mm -hmm. What are you doing? She said, I'm casting away the demon. And he said, you can't do that. You call that demon back. I'm going to do it. Got it. Got it. So it was like this weird, she was intimating that there was some kind of weird power play. Yeah. 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 Okay. You don't have the skill. You're not the person that's the minister. I'm the one with this power. Very. But call it back. Oh, okay. Call it back. (laughs) Yeah. So she says he's just, you know, changed person. He's now under the spell of this demon. So basically, in all of this, he starts accusing her of cheating on him and says that he's going to have her handle the snakes essentially to see if she's still holy, like letting the snakes tell the truth, right? Like, okay, you've handled these snakes before and... If you're not doing anything wrong, they won't bite you, but let's see. He forces her to get bit the first time, gets bit on the hand. She talks about being, you know, badly injured, succumbing to the poison and all of that that's going on. The next day, he tells her he's going to get her medical attention, but they just kind of drive around and do errands and they go, they go to to Target. (laughs) Yeah. They go to like this grocery store where they also rent videos and he has her go in and return the videos. And this is kind of a point of contention during the trial because she says, you know, my hand's swollen. The reenactment kind of shows this like sweaty, about to faint version of Darlene going in and handing the woman at the counter these videos. Yet at the trial, that woman testified and said, no, I didn't see anything wrong with her. I didn't see that, you know, her hand was swollen or anything right. else. So, so again, kind of he said, she said, but she said, I thought you were gonna take me to the hospital. And he goes, nope, I was just lying. So he takes her back home and then forces her to write a suicide note. And the note, I mean, they read it. And at first you're like, ooh, I don't know. This sounds like a suicide note. But then like every other line is, because it's written to their son, is like, daddy's sleeping. He doesn't know I'm doing this. <laughs> And it's just like kind of obvious that there's an alibi being written over and over again throughout this note. So anyway, he forces her to write this note. He then forces her at gunpoint to go back out to the snake barn. I call it the snake barn again. And he's trying to force her head into the snake box. But she said, I know that if you get bit in the face, you certainly are not going to live. So she put her hand in there and gets bit yet again and is in really, really bad shape. But Glenn starts drinking vodka and passes out. And this is when she calls 911. So that brings us up back to the beginning of the documentary. And I should note that in the documentary, very quickly when they're interviewing Darlene for the documentary, she denies the accusations of the yeah. child's sexual abuse and says basically Glenn and his boys could lie about anything and just kind of leaves it at that. So, yeah, it's getting more and more convoluted. So, a police officer who worked that Summerford case has this quote about the locals, and he says, People who live on the mountain take care of their own problems. And, you know, that's just not an uncommon trope of isolated rural communities that may or may not have a consistent law enforcement body on which to rely. Clarence Bolt. He was lead investigator in the early days of the crime is quoted as saying, everybody says this is a cruel world. This isn't a cruel world. It's a lovely world. It's a good world. But the people that are in it, that's what's making it cruel, which I think is very, very telling and very, very apt for sort of, you know, that's a nice way of saying that, you know, don't get away with excuses for putting it on external forces. Like everybody here has has their own personal stake in this, their own personal choice. But I, I do want to give information on the practice 
practice, which is it's covered, but they don't really go into a lot of the stuff. And I apologize if I bore people, but like this, this didn't just emerge out of nothing. This, this practice is part of a very complex belief system. The very specific tradition of snake handling within the fringe of Pentecostal churches is still on the, in the, solely in the Pentecostal area. Snake handling is like a game of rushing roulette, but with venomous reptiles instead of bullets. It's it's a rite that's observed in really, like we said, a small number of isolated churches, mostly in the U.S., and then of those, mostly in Appalachia. And this is usually characterized as a rural derivation of belief systems that's called the holiness movement. And although the holiness movement was, was somewhat bigger in years past, we're talking about the real emergence of this activity over the last hundred years or so. There are historical historical records from the second century of a religious order called the Ophites. And they handled snakes during their services, but they were that wasn't related to Christianity. That was a completely different religion, and they also worshiped the snakes, so there's that. But this is completely different. Integral to the practice of snake handling in recent years is it, that it is a literal interpretation of the Bible. The words of Jesus, as recounted in Mark 16, verses 17 through 18, is, and these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So that list is encompassing what are called gifts of the Spirit. And the Pentecostal religious movement came from what was that holiness movement. And that sprang up in the 19th century, mainly with Methodist church or Methodism, and to a lesser extent, other traditions like Quakerism, Anabaptism, and Restorationism. So there's a whole thing that is so complex because all of this is based on what's called the second work of grace, which is also referred to as entire sanctification or Christian perfection. It's the idea that, look, I know this is complex and we're using terms to further define other terms, which makes it really hard to, to get through. But what it breaks down to is that this holiness movement believes that the Christian life should be free of sin and that perfection signifies completeness of Christian character. Now, most people and certainly most a Christian denomination modernists would say that life is hard. We make tough decisions. We have challenges. We're all going to sin. And th- this sort of shooting for perfection in this life is is not particularly realistic. You know, you have a lot of things that you, it's about being the best person you can in the light of God or the light of Jesus, whatever that but is. But in the, in, the docu- in the documentary, Dr. Burton points out that that verse that you read, basically those five yep. skill sets of those five things is what someone like Glenn, who is heading up a church and is filled with the Holy Spirit, should be able to do and perform. And most of those things, they were claiming that he had. Yeah, and interesting, like, you know, they do show footage of one of the people that dropped dead during his ceremony. Oh, yeah. There's that, that you know, too. got bitten. Oh, well, you know, then God was calling you home, I guess. Yeah. So... I guess to put it in other terms, the holiness movement is like the cool kid at the Christian party. Oh. And he's teaching you that you can achieve perfect holiness while still here on earth. So yes, a sinless perfection is within reach. So that's what we call the entire sanctification. It's mm. achieved through a spiritual experience called that second work of grace or the second blessing. But hold on to your Bibles. Preach, not everybody, preach Dr. Scott. <laughs> okay. I, well, I, I can't because I don't, I'm not in that belief system anymore, although I was brought up in the Methodist church. Not everybody is on board with this idea. Reform thinkers, I guess reform thinkers are are more like the party poopers of Christianity <laughs> because they insist that original sin does still exist, even in the most devout of believers. So no matter how good a Christian you are, you still have original sin. The holiness movement, which was started by a woman named Phoebe Palmer, she started it preaching about the importance of holiness and, and the steps that you use to achieve it. And then all these groups sort of jumped on the holiness bandwagon. But all these little factions would would split off. And of course, if you're living in a rural area and you know, you're the self-ordained minister, then you're going to start interpreting things through your own lens, clearly. But this whole movement really had a major impact on the church and on the country, really. I mean, they call it the third great awakening in North America. So they're all about obedience to these spiritual laws as this is the only way to get closer to God and to become more spiritual. So So that would have been like around the time that actually Sister Amy McPherson started getting wrapped up in the Pentecostal movement because her mom was with the Salvation Army. Right. And then she started going to these 
tent revivals and all exactly. Of that. Interesting. Yeah, exactly. Don't worry though; you're not going to find snake handlers on every street corner. Most religious snake handlers are still found in the Appalachian Mountain area. Although other parts of the southeastern United States, especially Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, Kentucky, North Carolina, Tennessee, West Virginia, and South Carolina, I think the research is not so recent. But in 2001, about 40 small churches were still noted to be practicing snake handling, and that is very close. It's Sand Mountain. It's close to where I grew up, and we used to laugh about it in high, high school. It's like, oh, let's all go out to out to the snake handlers and have some strychnine because they also would drink watered down strychnine poison. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And in 2004, there were reported to be four snake handling congregations in provinces in Alberta and British Columbia, Canada. So that's interesting. So if you're looking for a church to handle snakes, you might have to do some traveling. Oh, but they're out there. So they're out there. Yeah. How about it? There's probably no website with an index of them, but <laughs> somebody should get on that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's <laughs> great. A little app. Yeah. <laughs> like snakes are us. Where can I <laughs> find snakes near you? So you pulled some research from another professor, Dr. Ralph Hood, who is a professor of social psychology and the psychology of religion at the University of Tennessee. And he studied the snake handling movement and wrote in 2003 that the practice is, quote, currently at a very low, let's try that again, quote, currently at a fairly low ebb of popularity. Great way <laughs> to put a, it. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> Currently, there are approximately 125 churches where snakes are handled, but that data is now at least 10 years old. Yeah. If, yeah, if not more. Complicating getting an accurate number is that those practices of snake handling are described as very private. So I'm sure it's hard to get cooperation and going around and doing research on this. People are quite suspicious. But when the practice emerged, there was a pretty quick legal action resulting in all Appalachian states except West Virginia outlawing the practice. We had Alabama, Kentucky, and Tennessee who have passed laws against the use of venomous snakes and or other reptiles that endanger the lives of others. And Kentucky laws specifically indicate religious services. And currently in Kentucky, snake handling is a misdemeanor and punishable by a max fine of a hundred dollars. Shocked, I tell you. I'm just shocked. <laughs> just pass the plate around and they can take care of that fine. Georgia, on the other hand, took things to the extreme and made snake handling a felony back in 1941 after a seven-year-old child met their untimely demise from a rattlesnake bite. But as it turns out, the punishment was so harsh that juries actually refused to convict and the law was eventually repealed in 1968. Okay, so, Georgia, there you go. <laughs> we've mentioned Georgia in a few episodes. Now. Yeah. Yeah. Now I know what you're thinking, but what about religious freedom, right? Well, interestingly enough, the American Civil Liberties Union has got the backs of these snake handlers and has defended their right to practice their religion in the face of attempts to ban the practice. So just remember, if you're in the Appalachian region and see someone handling a venomous snake, just remember it's legal in West Virginia and not likely worth the fine in Kentucky. So just keep that straight, guys. Make an Excel important. spreadsheet yeah. of what's what in each state. <laughs> In today's practice of Pentecostal snake handling, the worship services will still include all the classics, all the classic gifts of spirit, singing, praying, laying on of hands, healing, speaking in tongues and preaching. And interestingly enough, speaking in tongues has two different parts. One is that someone can start speaking in tongues, but it doesn't necessarily mean that people around them are going to be able to understand it or mm. they're going to be able to understand it because they may be going into a trance state. So other people are gifted with the gift of discernment where they're able to interpret what is being said by the person who's Okay. Yeah, it's it's very interesting some of the things. There's plenty of videos on YouTube of people speaking in tongue that is very interesting. I'm not making fun of it. I think it's fascinating, you know, and if people find religious connection to a bigger sense of self, then you do you. Just don't don't you dare take away the rights of anybody else. That's all I'm saying. The snakes that are used are include rattlesnakes, cotton mouths, and copperheads. Those are the usual suspects, but sometimes it's been reported that even cobras have gotten in on the fun. So I guess that depends on where the participants or the ministers have sourced their supplies. I'm not trying to be funny. Believers can approach the front of the church 
which is usually just a small, unassuming building. And they raise them up in the air and they even let them, you know, crawl on their bodies. It's not mandatory, but it's definitely a way to show off to yourself and the other participants that the Holy Spirit is manifesting in you and has great power. But if somebody gets bitten, it's no big, no big deal. They just pray for healing and trust that God's got their back. Mm. Darlene Summerford summed it up best when she said, it's just knowing you got power over them snakes. Mm. Um, And, you know, if somebody gets bitten and dies, then that's part of God's plan. Interestingly enough, I mean, I I think I may have talked about this in a previous episode where years ago I did the whole Tony Robbins weekend, the fire walk with me. No, that's the Twin Peaks. Peaks. But I did (laughs) do the fire walk. I did, yes, the Tony Robbins Twin Peaks seminar. But I did the the fire walk, which was really cool. You're getting yourself all worked up to not feel the coals. And then like, you know, a year later, somebody explained, no, that like you were stepping on cold water before you got on there. And like this happened. I'm like, but the guy next to me was burned. He's like, yeah, it happens. But that, you know, probably that cinder popped up on him. So there's a version of this within the snake mm-hmm. handling community. And I'm not encouraging anyone to go and sip on even watered down strychnine because that would be bad. And I'm not encouraging anybody to pick up snakes. But what has been found in a lot of the research is that the snakes that are being used for this activity have a very short life because they are, they're usually starved. Uh, So they may have venom, but they're not hugely active because they're taken out of their native habitat and they're shoved into a wooden box. Yeah. Almost like a handmade briefcase. That's their snake box. Right. And then it's carried around and the, you know, any kind of animal that is in shock and is taken away from its natural environment is mm-hmm. not going to act in a certain way. And like it may, there are even some congregations that will milk the venom from the snakes. And then those are the ones they use. So they get bitten and then they prey on it. Look, I didn't get sick. I don't need any antivenom. So I think, I mean, interesting that, you know, civil liberties union may be saying it's okay, but PETA certainly wouldn't. True. Very true. Good point. Yeah. And I, I like the point in the documentary where Dr. Burton talks about like, you know, it's kind of like Salem witch trials where, okay, yep. but like when you said, well, if someone gets bitten and dies, then that's just God's plan. Or like when Glenn was forcing her hand saying like, well, if the snake doesn't bite you, then maybe that means you didn't cheat. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. What happened? I mean, yeah, it's it, it's it's very convoluted. Yeah. Yeah. But we, we see it in the immediate aftermath of... Glenn's trial. And, you know, I don't know if to this day, if you found anything online, but many people in the area were still really divided over the case. And one interviewee stating, quote, if you knew Glenn Summerford, you knew he didn't attempt to kill her. If he wanted her dead, she'd be dead. So kind of referencing back to like his old ways that he, he would have done it, but I don't know, like it's a really good either way, right? Like we said, how it could totally make sense in a way of someone in this life dying by suicide or setting up it to look like a suicide. So, mm. yeah. And like, and if he's innocent, then that's a tragedy in itself. I think Darlene is a, a bit of a tragic character. Yeah. And yeah, I'm just, I just, I, I don't want to comment too much because this, these are people that are still alive. I'm sure that when this documentary came out, it reignited a lot of discussion. You know, it probably sure. revitalized the talk around it. It's been out for, you know, two and a half years now. And there were a lot of articles, which you can also read in our show notes. I've got links to all of them. But there's recent articles, you know, that have emerged talking about how people are still very divided in the community. So well, I'm not. I think he did it. I think he's guilty for sure. Probably. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, regardless of what what Darlene's current state is. And I think there's probably more than any of us will ever know. Mm, but, the, oh, yeah. but yeah, but it seems like the, the note seems to give it away to me the most as well. But in a quote from the website from East Tennessee State University, Dr. Thomas Burton states, I think the emphasis in the film in the ending focuses on what Glenn sincerely believed. It's hard to know what he did or didn't do. I personally came away with the view of the mother and sister at the beginning that he didn't want her dead or he would have killed her. Although there were a lot of circumstances implied and stated that she was really manipulating things to get away and be involved with another person. But I was convinced Glenn wanted to be a man of God. He wanted to stay in the church and work his ministry. Even in prison, he was continuing as a religious, believing Christian. So I think that's, I I completely get where he's coming from with that Mm. quote. And I've also worked in prison. And, (laughs) you know, it's, there's, you've got a lot of time to perfect your brand when you're Mm -hmm. in prison. Mm -hmm. So. Agreed. So 
I thought like in the opening scene when Dr. Burton's opening up all the archives and there's the plaque on the wall that says like studies of Appalachian folklore. I was like, how bad does Dr. Scott want into those archives? Because <laughs> I know you have an interest in this. So, yeah, I mean, you know, can you share a little bit of that interest with the folklore? That's a real tall order. I mean, I, no. my dad was a folklorist and a journalist and a photographer and and pretty challenged by some some rough mental health issues, but he was really, really gifted. So this was part of our growing up, not the lifestyle, but the knowledge of these stories. Mm. And it was just like, it, it was it's just very weird to talk to people when I got older, you know, going to more, not so much college, but moving out of state when there people coming from communities that didn't have this sort of stranger things type of alternate dimension that was literally just across the river. Yeah. I mean, that's that's yeah. kind of the way it was for us. And and I didn't know as much about it until after I left. I knew a little bit and then I came back because it was that sort of thing. If like you're from, if you're on the good side of town or if you're educated, oh, don't talk about those things. That's mm. just silly. You know, that don't don't and but it, there's like myth and like all these overlapping influences historically that started way back when the first immigrants came to the state. And I want to say immigrants very loosely because there were many, many Native American tribes in the Appalachian that were absolutely driven out and treated terrible, terrible, terrible. But the first diaspora that came over with immigration and settling was the Scots-Irish. And their belief systems had thousands of years of, of folklore mm -hmm. and beliefs and religious practices that were sort of wrapped around Christianity, like sort of the way Christianity subsumed a lot of pagan belief systems, you know, it also kind of flipped back around where they would say, yeah, we're going to church, but they also were very good at hexing, at, you know, doing tricks, casting spells, those kind of things, or under the, like, I'm going to light a candle and I'm going to say a prayer, but what you were actually doing was supposedly yeah. something a little bit more, more deep. Hmm. But all of this, you think about, you take all these like varying aspects of belief systems and then you put them in rural mountainous settings where you can be living in one holler that's only a couple of miles away and it might as well be a, a country away, you know, because What's a that's holler? How, one holler? A holler is, is the space between two steep mountains. Oh, so okay. there are a lot of valleys like, and I will say this folks, if you ever get a chance to go to the Smokies, the Smoky Mountains are just absolutely, absolutely stunning. But you basically feel like you're going through a maze. Oh, of interesting. Like you're, you know, and there are rivers that cut through the mazes and streams and then you'll be on the highway and like a, a bear will just sort of amble across the road <laughs> with their, their babies and stuff. It's very fascinating. Mm. I mean, it's, it's huge. The Appalachian range spans 737 square miles of terrain. Wow. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. There's a lot of variations on healing techniques. And one particular thing is called Appalachian granny magic. So there was always like, you know, the, the wise woman, mm -hmm. you couldn't get to the doctor, but if you could go to granny, granny's going to know, you know, which herbs you can take that would, and those were legit, legitimate medicines too. Yeah, you know, they yeah. had legitimate medicine skills that were passed down to them. But then other things started influencing as well, like Pennsylvania Dutch came over with their Hexen practices and under, but it was all sort of, okay, we're all Christian, but we do this stuff on the side as well. Got it. Okay. So, okay. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating field of study. There's so yeah. many ghost stories and sort of otherworldly beings that are sort of like monsters, but also there's like, you know, house spirits. There's all sorts of stuff. It's Wasn't just, there a podcast that you used to listen to? Oh my oh, God. It? It's so good. Appalachian Gods. Oh yeah. Or okay. Gods of Appalachia. And it's okay. sort of, yeah, I mean, it's, it's terrifying. It's like four or five seasons of just the scariest, mm -hmm. but it uses all of this Appalachian folklore. So the, the writers and actors that are used are just really, really talented. Oh, very so cool. How, do, how are we rating this? I'm hmm. going to let you go first. You're going to let me go first? Okay. Yep. Okay. Well, I liked it. <laughs> I I started it and watched about maybe 20 or 30 minutes and they had to get away from it and then went back to it, which is funny because that's kind of like the first like section where you just learn all yeah. about the crime. That's it. And then I thought that when I sat down to watch the rest, it just 
I was glued to it. It not like it was the best true crime documentary I've ever seen, but we joke about reenactments a lot. I thought the reenactments were quite good. I thought they gave a lot of nice, like artistic color and texture to the people and to the events as you're trying to picture this. Whereas you had this like old footage. But I feel like the the really nicely done reenactments sort of balance that out. So you're not like, oh God, this like old stuff of these like people from the middle of nowhere. You know, it just, I don't know. I, it's hard to explain. I just feel like it gave it more layers to me. And like you said, got artsy in some points, but not overly done to where I was like rolling my eyes. Okay. Maybe you did, <laughs> but from a psychological perspective, point of view. I, I like that there were only a handful of really like characters or people introduced to us. And to just think of it like, God, the trauma that Doris has gone through and with the the abuse of marriage and losing a daughter in a fire that she literally had in her arms until the last second Yeah. to Marty, you know, the son that was there watching all of this abuse. And then, you know, one parent tries to kill the other parent. And then kind of living without them afterwards and Darlene and and even Glenn. I mean, they paint Glenn's backstory to be, you know, a really tough childhood and with not a lot of, like you said, access opportunities. So I thought psychologically, these were just really, really interesting people. And then kind of the paranormal twist, I'm going to call it that, kept me engaged overall, right? right? Like people talking about, yeah, he casted out a spirit and I saw it come out of his mouth onto the floor, run around trying to jump into someone else. And then it like slid into a corner. And I was like, oh oh my God, that's so weird and gross. (laughs) Tell me more. (laughs) So I'm going to save my last comment for the end, but I was surprised at how much I enjoyed it. And I'm going to give it three brains. That's so interesting (laughs) because I think that there are are some fascinating things that are done. It's certainly, it's absolutely up my alley as far as what I'm interested in. I find it fascinating, but I just really, the narrative structure to me was Mm. incredibly boring. Got it. I thought that like it was just a little too ephemeral and to use an art school or a film school term, it was a little bit tone poem at times. Though I was really happy to show that like they showed, we didn't even talk about this, like the cave that Glenn went to to live in. Like he basically did his own sort of spiritual fasting and went, right. went and lived in this cave for 30 days. Yeah. And, you know, then you see his son going there. And it's one of those areas that really you see in Appalachia where it's sort of half cave and these beautiful beams of light illuminating a stream. And then there was also like some some stuff that I felt like I didn't want to see that in a documentary. I didn't want to see sort of him levitating out of a pool and the Holy Spirit coming down to him. I mean, I get that it was sort of a visualization of someone's belief system, but that kind of bugged me. And I felt like some of it was almost set up like horror movie stuff. So the reenactments were great. The actors doing the reenactments were actually some of the best that I've ever seen. That's true. But I felt like the balance was off. Like I, being a Southerner, I wanted to watch that grainy footage. I wanted the whole thing to be like vintage stock footage from that time and that area from the National Archives or from some stock company. And piece together the story that way. That would have been more of a documentary to me. So I just found it slow and plotting and without a real gripping plot, but maybe I'm biased because I'm from there and I expected more. Yeah. So two brains for me. At least it wasn't like the Archer animated reenactments like in our last Oh my God, those were so bad. Those were so bad. So I love like the little snark at the very, very end. So that scene that you're talking about where they sort of are showing him ascending from the water, right? Right. Right. So they reveal at the end that Glenn actually escapes from prison and they have this voiceover talking about, you know, it's like showing this shadow figure sort of running through the, the woods and then taking his shoes off and walking into the river. And I don't, well, I don't know if it was a voiceover or if it was actually from his tapes where he's talking about this ascension to heaven. And so you're watching this scene that is totally dramatic. And then there's just like this subtitle comes up that says, Basically, he was caught a few hours later in a dumpster. Yeah, so he was, he hiding, he was hiding as- in a dumpster. He has not yeah. ascended to heaven. <laughs> I was just like, that's perfect. Anyway, wow. I didn't know we would go there. It's probably something no one's really heard of. <laughs> but interesting. I mean, I like I would almost say that like I it would be fascinating as a movie. 
Like then you get into a movie, like Ooh, where yeah. you get to, like if they were going to do this as a movie, and then you get to go inside the actor's portrayal of what they actually believe, mm. you know, because mm. people with these really elaborate and deeply, deeply held beliefs, you do see things, you do experience things viscerally because you are invested in believing in them. That's sure. one of the things that's incredibly wonderful and incredibly dangerous about how the human mind works. So I would, you know, I think this is a great story and probably more stuff would come out. It also just felt like I was going, there's just got to be more. Mm. Like this person wasn't fully fleshed out. This person barely gave an interview. So what? Yeah. what's the story that we're not getting? You know, maybe Glenn did do all that and he's absolutely guilty. And does he believe he's guilty? Probably not. True. You know? like, True. I think I think narcissists can believe their own bullshit. And yeah. There's a lot of narcissists that become religious leaders. So, Or he could have just been drunk as shit and doesn't believe pockets of it or doesn't remember pockets of it. That, yeah. See, I mean, even that can be a really so, simple explanation. Yeah. But well, guys, there you go. Your documentary of the month. I'm sitting here looking at our custom stickers that we had done for CrimeCon. And I'm leaving in just a few days as of this recording coming out. So I was going to say, if we have leftovers, we will for sure send them out to Patreon members. So don't forget that you can still join Patreon at the $5, $8, or $10 level. So that's our associates, our interns, and our doctoral level members. And we'll, if we have any leftover, we'll send them out to you guys. They're so cute. They're really cool. I put a picture up on social media earlier, but yeah, just, just staring me here in the face. So I thought I would remind everyone that we'd love to have you. If you join at the intern or doctoral level, you get to join our discord, which I feel like I'm constantly just trying to catch up on. You guys are so active on there. Oh my God. I love how active it is. I'm like, oh, wait, I was busy this weekend. I know. Back and on. like giving the ve best feedback. I saw someone that oh was Oh my like, God. Smartest people ever. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Hey, I have a question for the docs. And it was something about borderline personality disorder. And I was like, Oh my God. I have Scott and I like missed this. And then our adorable Bridget from New Zealand's like, hey, I'm a clinical psychologist. Let me answer this for you. <laughs> and she busted out like the best research. I'm like, yeah. you guys are the best. Yes, yes. Okay, enough rambling. We will see you guys next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Thanks, guys. Bye, folks. Bye-bye. Sincerely, thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license and you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye, folks. <laughs>